John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. The mystery of the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you all. Um, do you ever feel like you are cut off from your true home? There are other ways of describing this. Do you ever feel like a stranger in the universe? Or do you ever feel like you're alienated from the love, intimacy, and belonging you were made for? This is one of the most common human experiences. Uh, for instance, John Krakauer is a famous writer. He once put it like this. He said, I don't know if God even exists. Nevertheless, most of us ache to know the love of our creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, as long as we happen to be alive. Or Eva Hoffman is a Jewish intellectual. I don't think she's a religious person, though. She puts it like this. Is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We feel ejected from our first homes. An ideal sense of belonging eludes us. 
Or let me give you one more. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was a famous Buddhist monk who introduced mindfulness to the West. He puts it like this. Sometimes we have a feeling of alienation. We feel cut off from everything. We have been a wanderer and have tried hard, but have never been able to reach our true home. All these people have different worldviews, and yet they're all describing the same experience. C.S. Lewis said it's like living in a world where it's always winter, never Christmas. We feel cut off from our true home. Why is that? And is there any remedy for it? This passage that we just read is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's all about this Christian idea called the incarnation, that God himself became a human being and entered into this world from outside of this world. This is the message of Christmas, but what does it mean? Well, there's way too much in this passage for us to explore in one morning. We actually did a three-part series on this uh, back in December of 2019. You can find it on our website. But this morning, let's very briefly just ask three questions. Uh, why do we feel cut off? Second, what does God do about it? And third, what does it mean for us? Why do we feel cut off? What does God do about it? And what does it mean for us? Okay. First, why do we feel cut off? This passage describes Jesus as the Word, and we'll come back to that. But it also describes Jesus as the light and says, the light shines in darkness. Now, this is a saying that we live in a dark world, not a crepuscular world uh, that is a mixture of light and darkness. We live in a dark world. And especially, this is talking about the moral and spiritual darkness that is in all of humanity. So, for instance, just a few chapters later in John chapter 3, Jesus says the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus is explicitly connecting darkness with evil. He's saying that this evil is in all of us as human beings and, most importantly, that this dark evil destroys our relationship with God. Friends, all of this is pointing us to the beginning of the book of Genesis. You may have noticed the very first verse in this passage says, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? It's quoting Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you're familiar with the story, do you remember what else happens at the very beginning of Genesis? God puts the first humans in a garden. Uh, the Garden of Eden was like, it was the place of God's presence. It was the place of intimacy with God. The garden was home. And God tells the first humans, you can eat from any tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But instead of trusting God, they eat the tree. They want to be the ones who decide what's good and what's evil. It was a massive betrayal. And because of their rebellion, what happens? God exiles them out of the garden, away from his presence. They're alienated from God. And God puts a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. The sword is a sign of relational cutoff between them and God. Dear ones, this is the Bible's answer to why we feel cut off from our true home. We're alienated from God. 
And by the way, every single one of us knows exactly what this is like. Have you ever had someone betray you or hurt you, like really hurt you, but then they come back and say, oh, I'm sorry that you feel hurt? Why is that so offensive? We call that gaslighting. Why? It's because they're saying that, that what they did is really, it's just in your head. It didn't really happen, but but we're saying, no, what you did is real. It happened. It's, it's, it's an objective reality. You really hurt me. I, you know, this is very different from other answers to why we experience this feeling of being cut off. So, for instance, Eastern spirituality would say that our experience of feeling cut off is a subjective illusion. In other words, um, we only imagine that we're cut off from God because we imagine ourselves as being separate from God. But if we could just attain a higher level of consciousness, we'd realize that there is no alienation. So for instance, to go back to Thich Nhat Hanh, he says it like this. The cosmos is our home. Meditation means to look deeply so we can realize that we are already home. Our home is available right here and now. He's saying that this experience of feeling cut off is a subjective illusion. It's, it's a... It's a a mistaken appearance, and we need to elevate our consciousness. Or the answer of the modern West is to say that our experience of feeling cut off is the result of social oppression. And this idea, um, uh, in many ways, comes from a very famous French philosopher named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Good old Jean-Jacques said that um, society oppresses and shames us with false identities. But your inner self is really pure and innocent, and you just need to get in touch with your authentic self and express it to the world around you. Does that sound familiar? That is the most powerful storyline in our culture today. Now, listen, maybe Eastern spirituality is right, or maybe uh, modern Western culture is right. But notice, both of them are saying a, there is no moral or spiritual darkness inside of you. And B, they're both saying that uh, the solution is we all just need to tap into our own inner resources. The gospel says neither of those things. It doesn't say that the, our feeling of being cut off is the result of a subjective illusion or social oppression. It says that it's the result of spiritual rebellion. That's the reason that we feel cut off. There's breakdown in our relationship with God. And as a result of that breakdown, there's breakdown in our lives and all the rest of the world. I mean, why is there war, violence, poverty, racism, oppression in the world? Why is there so much um, uh, chaos and turmoil, polarization and division in the world? There's darkness in the world because there's darkness in us. We have a breakdown in our relationship with God, and that's why we feel cut off. And that leads to our second question. Why do we feel cut off? Well, there's breakdown in our relationship with God. But secondly, what does God do about this? If we go back to the story about the garden, remember the sword is there as a sign that there's been a relational cutoff. But the sword is also there as a sign that in order for the relationship to be restored... Someone has to go under the sword. Now, many of us might think, wait a minute, why can't God just forgive? And that's a really good question. But let's ask ourselves, why can't we just forgive? Many of us have heard about things that have happened to others, maybe things that have happened to you, things that are so heinous, so evil, that we say they are 
unforgivable. To forgive something like that would feel like a denial of justice. Which means the question is not, why can't we forgive? The real question is, what would it cost us to forgive? If you've ever been hurt like that, you know that forgiveness would mean instead of condemning and punishing the other person, you absorb the condemnation and the punishment. Because if you've ever forgiven someone at that level, how does that feel? It feels like you're going under the sword. And you are for them. Which means this. It means that forgiveness is not a denial of justice. Forgiveness is a transfer of justice. Forgiveness is not a denial of justice. It's a transfer of justice. Why can't God forgive? Well, of course he can. And he does. But forgiveness means that instead of making you go under the sword, someone else goes under the sword for you. Someone else is your substitute. And we see that in this passage. You might ask, where? (laughs) Well, take a look with me. In the very beginning, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this word, Word, is a very important word. To ancient Greeks, it meant um, God's creative Word through which he Uh, created the whole universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the universe into existence. That's what it meant to ancient Greeks, but the word here uh, is the Greek word logos, which was a very famous, very important word for ancient Greeks, especially in Greek philosophy. This word logos was a word that meant something like the rational principle that holds the whole universe together. Almost like a living blueprint. Actually, it's almost like the force in Star Wars. It's an energy force field. I'm one with the force, and the force is with me. Very important word for the ancient Greeks. But John takes this word that meant so much to the Jews and the Greeks, and he stands it on its head by saying this, that the word became flesh. John is taking this word, and he's basically saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters, hey, you know God's creative word through which he spoke all the universe into existence? That word became a human being named Jesus. It scandalized them. It also scandalized ancient Greeks because John is telling them, hey, you know that rational principle that holds all things together? It's actually a transcendent, personal God. And that God became a human being named Jesus. Friends, this scandalized everybody. Especially because this word logos is actually a very graphic almost crude word, almost like saying that the God of the universe became a piece of meat, saying that Jesus is not just a a manifestation of God. He doesn't just point to God. Jesus is God in the flesh. But the truly scandalous thing about this is when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is a word that means tabernacle. Now that may not mean much to us, but Do you remember how the Garden of Eden, that's the place of God's presence, and we've been exiled from the Garden? In the book of Exodus, God comes to the Israelites and he tells them, I want you to build a tent. It's called the tabernacle. This tent, this tabernacle, was the Garden of Eden 2.0. The tabernacle was the renewed place of God's presence. But the only reason it could be the place of God's presence was because the tabernacle was also the place of sacrifice. Because in the tent, an ox or a lamb would go under the sword. Because remember, 
The only way for the relationship to be restored is for someone to go under the sword because forgiveness is not a denial of justice. It's a transfer of justice. And so all the guilt of rebellion was transferred to an innocent lamb so that all the innocence of the lamb could be transferred to the people. Are you starting to see? We might say, well, how could a lamb or a goat or an ox take away the sins of real people? It can't. But just a little bit later in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about this. Um, You know, by all rights, we're the ones who ought to go under the sword. But if we did that, there would be nothing left of us to be in relationship with God. But the truly scandalous thing about the gospel is that on the cross... The God of the universe went under the sword himself for us. Because Jesus is God. He's also the tabernacle. He's also the lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's all of it. And Jesus came and died on a cross in order to rescue us from our darkness and bring us home. And that leads to our last question. We've asked, why do we feel cut off? It's because there's breakdown in our relationship with God. What does God do about it? He goes under the sword for us. But last, what does this mean for us? Because here's the thing. We live in a world um, where spirituality is very in vogue, right? Spirituality is in, but religion is out. And for good reason. I mean, people see the hypocrisy, the abuse, the misogyny, the racism, and the um, political captivity of the church. People rightly reject that. And yet, we all are still spiritually hungry. That longing for home still aches in our hearts. And as a result, many people say, well, look, all this stuff about the cross and the resurrection and the word made flesh, all of that is fine as long as we understand that it's all a metaphor or a story pointing to a deeper reality of love, inclusion, tolerance, hope, and let's all make the world a better place. For instance, one of the best examples of this that I know is from the Broadway show, The Book of Mormon. It's all about two Mormon missionaries who go to Africa to tell the people there about God's wonderful plan for the world, according to the Book of Mormon. The problem is only one of them actually knows what their religion teaches, and he gets discouraged and leaves. So all the people come to the other missionary and say, hey, what does your religion teach? He has no idea. So he just makes up a bunch of crazy stories. In fact, they're ludicrous and obscene. But that's the whole point of the show. Because at the end, when all the stories turn out to be a fraud, there's one person named Nabalungi, and she's heartbroken because she actually believed it. And so all of her friends come to her at the end of the show, and they say, listen, you didn't really believe all that stuff, did you? None of it's actually true. It's a metaphor. All the prophets always speak in metaphors. The whole message of the show is that, listen, if you take all these crazy religious stories too literally, they'll just turn you into a fool and a bigot. But if you understand it's all a metaphor, then you will be able to take the basic message and apply it to your life so you can become a better person and make the world a better place. Now listen, this is a really alluring narrative. The only problem is Jesus absolutely refuses to cooperate with it. 
Because remember, logos, this word, to the Jews that meant God's creative word. To Greeks it meant the rational order that holds together the universe. Our modern spiritual narrative would say, look, this is just a metaphor pointing to a deeper reality. But what does John say? No, the word became flesh. Or literally, the word is not pointing to reality. The word is Jesus. Or we could say it like this. Jesus isn't just one more metaphor or story pointing to a deeper reality. Jesus is the deeper reality. And all the other metaphors and stories of our world and all the aches and longings of our heart are ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Friends, here's what this means for us. If you're here this morning and maybe you're spiritually curious or maybe you're skeptical about Christianity, but this is challenging you to rethink your concept of reality. It's easy to think, in fact, our culture encourages us to think, look, all religions are basically like Aesop's fables. It doesn't really matter if the hare had a race with a tortoise. The, the most important thing is not the details of the story. The most important thing is the moral of the story. But the gospel is saying, no, the most important thing is this story. It is the details, the, the historical realities of a crucified Jesus who physically rose from the dead. In other words, Jesus is not somebody who came just to teach us how to find our way home. Jesus came to rescue us so that he could bring us home because Jesus is our home. This challenges us to rethink our whole concept of reality. But secondly, we need to confront the darkness in our own lives. And listen, there is no darkness greater than the darkness of believing that we already have the light within us. Even if you're a Christian, we live in a world that is constantly telling us, you already have all the light within you. You already have all the power and all the resources within you. We just need to tap our inner light, tap our inner power. In fact, the, this narrative, what it does is, is it reduces God to a life coach or a personal assistant who's simply there to affirm you and support you in an identity you've already created for yourself and the life path you've already chosen for yourself. But the gospel, again, comes and says, no, this is a God who breaks into this world from outside of this world in order to rescue us from our darkness and to transform us into the people he created us to be. Because we don't have the light inside of us. We need the light to rescue us. Many of you may know that in the ancient world, when Roman gladiators would enter the arena to fight to the death, they would first stop, they would turn to the emperor, and they would say, Hail Caesar, we who must die salute you. The famous poet W.H. Auden once wrote a poem about Advent called For the Time Being. In that poem, he takes the gladiator's words and subverts them. Here's what he says. We who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Auden is saying that, look, all human power ultimately will fail us. And that the impossibility of human power can only be answered and overcome by the miracle of God's power. That's what he's saying. Do you ever feel like this... Your life in this world is a, a fight to the death. Like you're in an arena and there's tigers and lions nipping at your heels all the time. The only thing that can answer the impossibility of human power is the miracle 
of God's power. We need that God to come into our life and rescue us. And yet we live in a world that's constantly telling us you already have the power. You already have the light. Friends, the more we rely on our own power, the more broken and divided and polarized our world becomes. The more chaos, crisis, turmoil, and trauma we see in the world. The more addicted, lonely, suicidal, depressed, and, um, and anxious we become. We need somebody else to come into our lives and rescue us from the darkness and bring us home. Friends, that's Jesus. And that means that we need to unmask the lie that says there is no darkness inside of you. We need to surrender our vision for our lives to God's transforming vision for us. And most importantly, we need to fix all the aches and longings of our heart on the crucified and risen Jesus because he's not a metaphor. He is the reality. He is the miracle. He is our home, and he did everything necessary to bring you home. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this day that by your word, your loving creative word, you brought all things into existence, including us. And we thank you also that even though uh, we have betrayed you and rebelled against you, that we have been the ones who wanted to be the gods of our own life. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us alienated and exiled from you, but that you did everything necessary to break into this world from outside this world, to rescue us from the darkness and to bring us back home to you because you loved us. We loved darkness more than we loved you, but you loved us more than you loved our, um, our sin and our failure. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to confront the lie in our own hearts that there's no darkness inside of us. We pray that you would help us to surrender our vision uh, for our lives to you. We pray that you would help us to um, keep focusing all the heart longings and, and aches of our heart on Jesus, on the crucified and risen Jesus. Lord, bring these Christmas incarnational truths more powerfully to bear in each of our hearts and lives this day and for the rest of our lives, that we may be vessels of your incarnation, your love, and your reality to the world around us. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.